Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Pastor Harold Harker. This is the second of my conversations with Harold. Today, in the first part of the program, Harold is going to focus on historical events that have changed the world. He's also going to be talking about some of the evidences for the Bible. In the second part of the program, I'll be talking with Harold about his early life and decision to become a minister. If you didn't hear the first conversation, I'll reintroduce Harold. And in case you're wondering, Harold is my cousin. Harold has been a teacher, principal, missionary, pastor and church administrator. He was president of the North and South Queensland Conferences of the Seventh-day Adventist Church and also president of the Trans-Tasman Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Harold has a long-standing interest in biblical and church history and for many years has led church history tours to Europe and biblical history tours to Bible lands. He has produced superb country guides for church history tours to Europe. Harold continues to lead tours to Bible lands. He also writes articles for Christian magazines. Additionally, Harold has worked closely with evangelist John Carter in Russia, Ukraine, India, South Africa, Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands and Los Angeles. Welcome, Harold. It's great to have you back today. Great to be here. Now, in this part of the program, I want to focus on history and the Bible. Let's start with some major turning points in history. There are so many, but you can see where things have changed from critical points. Um, let me just take one as a, an example. We often talk about or as mentioned, Canossa, a place in northern Italy where the king of Germany, Henry IV, met and finally was subservient to Gregory VII. Uh, it came about like this. Henry had appointed a bishop in Germany. The Pope took umbrage at that and said, I appoint bishops everywhere. You don't. He appointed another one. Of course, in those days, if you remember the original film Martin Luther, there was some money that took place and Henry had got the cash. The Pope had missed out. And so he finally says, OK, you're not the king anymore. I absolve your subjects from all allegiance, no taxes, no fighting. And Henry takes a number of his loyal soldiers, hot foots it down into Italy and the Pope hears that he's coming and goes to the castle of Canossa, an interesting castle in ruins today. But there on this top of this mountain, Henry gets there and the Pope closes the gates. It's snowing and he waits for three hours. The issue is authority. Who's going to be in charge of the world, the Pope or the kings? And history of that time showed that this was a real crux turning point. Finally, Henry gives in. He stays in the, in the snow for three days and then says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. He's restored and goes back to Italy. But this was a turning point and the rise of the medieval church to a position where it controlled most of the world. So Canossa was a real turning point. Who is in control? Who has the authority? I guess that's what drives a lot of our disputes in the world today, not just in a religious sense, sure. but in a political sense. A lot of those disputes are about, okay, who's going to be in control? A power control, a power 
If it's absolute, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And we see this all around us in politics and in the history of the world. So these historical events from centuries past continue to resonate today. They're the, the same issues. We haven't completely resolved them, have we? Right. Now, in fact, I just used the quote from Lord Acton, power corrupts, mm. abs- and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's interesting to note that he came from London across to Italy in the 18, early 1870s when the doctrine of papal infallibility was being presented. And he says, we don't need an infallible person. And that's where the quote comes from. We apply it to all powers. Mm. But it actually came from the 1870s at that time. Now, in centuries past, religion was, religion and politics were pretty much closely entwined, weren't they? They sure were. So we would expect that when we look back in history, we're going to see that religion has played a particularly important role in great turning points in history. Are there some others that we can mention? Yeah, there are other points. Let me... The great uh, person in Martin Luther, the German monk, uh, his father was a mine manager and sent him to university in Erfurt and he'd travelled home back to Mansfield and on his way back to university, a young man, a university... He was studying law, wasn't he? He was... Well, he wanted to be... Well, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. But he was studying law. Mm-hmm. And uh, he comes back to a little village of Stotterheim, just outside Erfurt, probably five, eight kilometres or something. And there a thunderstorm comes. And the thunder comes and the lightning flashes. And he says, Sadana, help me, I'll become a monk. And true to his promise, he knocks on the door of the Augustinian monastery in Erfurt and enters as a monk then to change the history of the world. His father at first, not very happy, but I guess as he went on, he might have at least grudgingly given him some recognition. That must have been some storm to elicit that sort of response from Martin Luther. Oh, it must have been. But if you go to Stutterheim, there's that stone with this in German. This is where it took place and it changed the world, and we can see places and events that have changed world history. Mm. So just from that one storm, it's changed the last half millennium, hasn't it, really? Well, then you can look at Luther's life that that went on from there. Um, You can go to Worms, where he makes his great stand. Here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. And he refuses to recant and uh, walks out and gets excommunicated. So what was the great issue of that time? The issue was the authority again. Luther had taken the Bible and saw that it gave certain different interpretations to what the church was happy with. And it was either you recant these or else. And uh, finally, that's quite a story of going to Luther in the 10 days he was there. That really changes the world. But Luther was involved in a lot of change. Um, you can go through Germany and, of course, go and visit Wittenberg, where he lived. He was under the uh, protection, if you like, of Frederick. And uh, then he nails his 95 theses. Been uh, 
probably uh, the, the monk, uh, Tetzel, who came selling indulgences, just fires him up so much against indulgences, he puts his 95 theses on the door of the castle church. So this, this um, wasn't intended to begin a split in the church at that stage, was it? No, he wanted just to keep the church true to the Bible. This was a, an internal matter within the church, wasn't Correct. it? Correct. Uh, but that really, the printing press had come about, and it wasn't long, just a few weeks, his 95 theses are spread all across Europe. So if that had happened in, in previous centuries... It mightn't have worked out the way that it did, it but the printing press had opened the way for this Correct. to get right across Germany and then eventually across Europe. Yeah. So the changing technologies were also having an impact on these events. Just like uh, social media today changes the world. Mm. And changes it in dramatic ways, doesn't it? It sure does. In, uh, fact, in fact, we're getting to the point now where I'm told that soon kids won't be taught to write It'll all be just keyboard stuff. That would be that would be a dramatic change, wouldn't you it? You need keyboard skills today. In fact, if you don't have computer skills and keyboard skills and internet availability, you're, you're a nobody. It, you're out of it, aren't you? You are. In fact, someone told me they gave their five-year-old, and they could work this little tablet more than the parents could. Now, that's a new age. Yeah, I guess if you want to know something about technology, you ask someone younger than yourself, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's and, true today. And I think that's the way that things are going for the future. So as we look back, we can see that these great turning points in history also had precursors. Things were taking place in the world that helped these things to, to, to happen. But... The world was ready for it too, wasn't it? I think there was a well. I think it awakened of, to it. Yes. Yes, I think there were issues you know, during that time that Luther uh, he he woke these issues up. Really, they'd been percolating. There was German nationalism sitting underneath oh, all yes. of this stuff as well, wasn't yes. there? Let me say, Luther, he um, heard that uh, Eck had called some of his compatriots. To, to go to Leipzig. Now, this is Dr. Eck, isn't Dr. it? Dr. Eck. He came from another German university. And he was a Catholic theologian. He was the Catholic theologian, and he was the opponent of Luther so many times. And Luther gets to, uh, to Leipzig, and in the debate, Eck f says, I'm, we don't need books. Don't bring your books in. It's all going to be up here in the head. Um, well, that was okay. But he then shoots an arrow straight at Luther and says, you are proposing that we take the Bible and the Bible only. Uh, you can't do that. And Luther says, it is the rule of our faith and practice. And Eck then shafts him and says, if you do that, you have to keep the Bible Sabbath and not the Sabbath the church has put in place. Now, this became an issue with Luther and Karlstadt because Karlstadt was also one who proposed that the Sabbath of the Bible should be kept. Luther even said, well, Karlstadt, if you say anything more about this, then we'll all have to keep Saturday. Uh, it was an issue of the time. Uh, Schaff in his religious history mentions these things from Luther and from the days of Karlstadt 
turning points where is it the scripture or isn't it the scripture? And Luther had no answer to that. Mm. And those questions are still with us today, aren't they? That's right. I mean, you and I are both Seventh-day Adventists. We, we worship on the Sabbath, on the seventh day of the week. And we do that because we believe that that's what Scripture requires of us. Um, but the Protestant Reformation seemed to stall on this issue. It did stall. There were, you can go down to the time of the Anabaptists. It was also in the time of Luther, there were some other priests that began to study and came up with some of these Anabaptist ideas of Scripture. And Andreas Fisher was one. And they said, well, look, let's ask Brother Luther Martin. If Luther says this, we'll all do it. If he says no, we all won't. Agreed? And they took the stand, the Anabaptists, that Luther had taken at Worms. Here I stand. I can do no other. Mm. This is the word of God. And so the issue comes clear. Is the word of God the guiding star for us or not? And, of course, that works out in Luther's life. To, to merely ask that question, we're going to go by Luther's authority, is to deny the very thing that he was standing on, wasn't Correct. it? Correct. That's right. So ultimately, all of these religious things come down to whose authority is going to be recognized. That's, that is the bottom line. Authority brings with it power. So from right down from Henry's time at Canossa mm -hmm. down to today, right. those issues still resonate. What's going to be our authority in, in religious matters? Well, that's where it is. It came to a head right through. You go up to France, you have... Um, the great uh, Huguenot massacre of St. Bartholomew's Day. Uh, France suffered for a hundred years after most of the Huguenots fled the country. All their weavers, their wool workers, their, their middle class fled France and France GDP just dropped down for a hundred years. So it had a tremendous economic impact. It did. And it, that helps us to understand the... Um, the French Revolution too, doesn't it? Because it was that history of violence, right. religious violence in the country right. that exploded during the, the, the French Revolution. And they said, we don't want religion. We want liberty and equality and fraternity. And reason is put up there as the sole thing. Religion is not part of it. The churches were out of it. But a there, was a, there was a period there, though, in French history where there was at least toleration of the Huguenots. Right mostly during the 17th century, and that was revoked by Louis XIV, wasn't yes. it? Yes. After it was given, the Edict of Nantes, th there was toleration because the king was a half-Huguenot, or he was potentially Huguenot. He should have been, but he, he was but tolerant of didn't everybody. did he convert back to Catholicism? Yes, he did, yes. And, but he was tolerant of the, of the Huguenots, and when that was revoked in the, the late 17th century... The persecution came. The persecution came back. And so that there'd been this history of persecution. So you can only understand France today by looking at its history, and particularly its, re its religious history. We need to see what history has been for all of us because it does impact where we are today. So the issue comes back to us as to who is going to be authoritative in our lives. Right. Is it going to be God or is it going to be some conception of science? So we're all in some way or other adopting an ultimate source of authority for our lives and the way that we think and the way that we behave. 
Well, if you have no external authority, everyone does what's in the right in their own eyes. Mm. Now, scepticism is pretty popular today. Uh, it sort of permeates our media, our society, certainly academia. Um, but I'm reminded that scepticism is self-reflexive. That is, if you're a skeptic, then you should also turn that scepticism back on your own beliefs, if you're going to be consistent, that is, anyway. But we see very little of that. Correct. And so some of these issues, even though we've talked about evidence for the Bible, so even though some of the evidence is there that's, that's, that uh, can, re can resolve some of these issues, the point is that some people just shut that evidence out. In fact, I'm reminded of uh, Michael Polanyi's statement. He was a, a chemist who um, got involved in philosophy of science. And he said, because the skeptic does not doubt what he himself believes, his skepticism is a way of promoting his own beliefs. And it becomes self-fulfilling. You just go down one track and virtually have one eye. Hmm. And so you get people talking to each other through megaphones, but people are not listening or they're not engaging with the mm -hmm. evidence. And so one of the things that we're doing today, particularly in, the, in a few minutes' time, is to actually have a look at some of the evidences for the Bible. Okay, the claim has been made. The Bible is not true. It's not reliable. So we'll have a look at some of those. And people can make up their own minds. And these things are in the public domain, so people sure. can go and check them. It's not as if we're just introducing something that's beyond most people's capacity right. to check out. Let me take another great turning point of history. Um, you go back to Whitby. Whitby has a bit of interest for Australians. Captain Cook came from there. But in Whitby, in the 7th century, in the 660s, there was this great synod. You see, um, Rome had sent its missionaries to Britain and in the... 500s, and they'd made a foothold in Kent and southern England. But the Irish church, the Celtic church, had come across from Ireland to Iona in Scotland, down to Lindisfarne, and was permeating the north of the country. And the king finally called a synod and said, we want to see who's got the best argument, who's got the best background here for what they're teaching. And at the Synod of Whitby, he finally put it this way. He said, well, I believe your Bible is good and your story is right and Cuthbert and, uh, and these people like um, Patrick uh, and they're all good. But I'm told here that when I die, I get to heaven, Peter will hold the keys. And he gave the keys to this church. And so I'm going to follow that. And the Synod of Whitby saw the rise of the church from Rome and the retreat of the Celtic church. And you can follow that back to Wales and to Scotland and Ireland. And you can see the ebb and flow of the authority of the various beliefs. And Whitby was a turning point in that for England. So right back in the 7th century, you have this religious dispute, yeah. the synod, mm -hmm. and it has an impact on subsequent history, not only just in England, but through Wales, through the United Kingdom, through Correct. Ireland. And that, that comes right down to us today. Well, you take, let's take another one from English history. You, you have there the uh, English church, and you have people who wanted to live a, a pure life. They were called the Puritans. 
and they wanted to live by the Bible as they saw it. And the English church says, no way. And so you have the Pilgrim Fathers leaving England, going to the Netherlands, and then coming back and sailing to America in the Mayflower. And you have Cape Cod, 1620. But you have the foundation of America because of the split of who is going to be in charge, its authority again. Mm. And these Pilgrim Fathers wanted a country without a king that can say you do this and without head of church like the Roman church had. And so you have a growth of a new country, but it's also got its foundation in the conflicts of the English church. But that, that's an interesting an interesting um, period in time be- period in time because you have people who themselves were being persecuted who also were quite happy to persecute others right. when, when they got to the United States. And in fact, it was a pretty unfree sort of society mm. for a century and a half there. Right. And uh, the American Revolution paved the way for the uh, religious freedom in the United States. So the United States is actually set up on a quite different basis from what it was established on. And I guess that's why we see today people who want to go back past the American Constitution back to the time when they didn't have the sorts of freedoms that they have in the United States today. I can't imagine what the United States would be like if it revoked its religious freedom. But all those conflicts that were there in times past were, res- were resolved by the American Constitution. And so even today, that the tenor of American politics is around that issue of authority and independence and, and, and uh, people being able to exercise their freedoms. Personal liberty. But that wasn't the initial experience of many people in those it, places. It gets back to what I said, power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Let me take the example of John Kelvin. The 16th century, the 1536, he comes into Geneva and the town council is virtually one with him. And whenever you have that church and the the power of the state together, Michael Servetus was a guy who had his own beliefs and he thought he would sneak into Geneva and he was seen and the council, yes, Kelvin just put his hands and let him be put to death. Uh, whether they were Catholics or Protestants, they all persecuted their opponents. Mm. And I just, if you want liberty, you have to grant liberty to the next person as well as yourself. And you can't just grant toleration because you can remove toleration. Correct. And that's why I think it's a genius to include religious liberty in your constitution. Yes. Because then everyone is guaranteed that freedom to be able to live according to their conscience. Correct. And what a massive difference it's made to the West to have that religious freedom. To have the religious freedom has brought more prosperity than others because they've been following these principles that give you freedom to do something not only in religion but also in your work. Hmm. So essentially we live in an environment that's saturated from the past with these historical conflicts Mm -hmm. around religion and the state and uh, authority and the Bible and who we're going to trust. And into that mix comes the concept that we really don't need the Bible, that we can, by our own unaided reason, determine what the world is made of and how it functions and what its meaning is and so forth. 
without that external authority of Scripture, then we are like rudderless in a ship because everyone does what they think is best for them and forget the others. And because science is always a work in progress, we never quite get to the end of the journey. Right. Yet you and I live mortal lives. We have to we have to come to some conclusion about what meaning exists in the world and what meaning is about for us. Right. Because we are confronted with these religious claims. We mm-hmm. have to decide for ourselves. We are confronted with scientific claims. And mm-hmm. so we have to make our determinations about how we're going to live our lives. And to do that, we have to have some source of authority, some ex- something external to us that we trust. And I guess this brings us nice and neatly into the next part of my conversation, and that is the issue of the truthfulness of the narrative of the Bible. Is the Bible true? Do we have the evidence to demonstrate that some of the historical claims are true? I mean, we talked about in the previous program the fact that you could actually visit these places, you could see things, and you could see that the, the historical description in the Bible was accurate, are there things that actually confirm some of the uh, historical claims of the Bible that might not be related to geography or place or whatever? I think the very fact that the Bible exists that it is and has been traced back for millennia and take the Dead Sea Scrolls. What we have today is the, is the scripture that was written thousands of years ago and it's virtually the same right through. The, the the variations are so minor that you wouldn't even call it a variation. Mm. Uh, the very fact that the scriptures have been um, protected, if you like, or hand, handed down by scribe to scribe to generation to generation, I think that in itself is one thing. Then there is the, uh, the fact that scriptures themselves are complete. One isn't uh, arguing with another, there is the unanimity mm. of Scripture. Is another evidence. So of that it. internal coherence, the fact that the Bible was written over fifteen hundred years Correct. by about forty authors. Yep. But there's this stunning coherence, indicates that it has to be an inspired source that creates right. that, because you wouldn't normally get forty writers writing over completely different cultures over fifteen hundred years, coming up with a completely coherent document, an internally coherent document unless it was inspired, unless there was a divine inspiration. Take the the Bible, obviously the central person is Jesus Christ. And you take his disciples, 12 uneducated people, fishermen, a tax gatherer and whatever, and after three years they were so discouraged when Jesus is put in the tomb but they come and they change the world and they would die and all of them did except John. All of them died for following what they believed was the truth in there and so we have the record of the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament that show these people took it and there is sufficient belief, sufficient evidence for their belief that we can say, yeah, Newsweek recently had a front cover story about the Bible and its unreliability. <laughs> I imagine it's provoked quite a bit of, uh, bit of a, a backlash. So let's have a look at some of these things that confirm, just maybe even just simple things that confirm the biblical account. Because if we can trust it historically, 
then I can imagine we can trust it when it deals with moral and spiritual issues. Let me just give you one example. For hundreds of years, people said the Hittites never existed. Mm. This is one that um, Pastor Len Tolhurst mentioned recently. Right. And then they discover that in Turkey, these cities, the Hittite was quite an empire. And the actual events, the Hittites fight with the Egyptians. It's all mentioned, and now they have the records uh, that the Hittites were there. People said Daniel didn't exist. Pilate wasn't there, but the Bible says he was the governor. of. But now they have not only stones they've found with his name on, um, all of these things just add up and say, hey, listen, the answers are coming in. The Bible is historically accurate in its record and what it has, and therefore you say it must have some authority for me today. I'm not familiar with the claim about Daniel. What's that claim? Well, Daniel, I say, didn't actually exist. Uh, He's a figment of some imagination or someone wrote about him and put his name down, and they say... Well, he made some prophecies about these other following nations, so he must have lived after the event and someone's written about it before. But now you can find evidences from Daniel uh, being in these places from archaeology. Okay. I would like to go over Iran and Iraq have not been places I've gone to because you couldn't get there, but you can get to Iran now. And they tell me it has some great evidence of Daniel over there. I'm aware that people have claimed that Daniel was written in the 2nd century BC rather than the 6th century BC because he made these stunning predictions about these successive kingdoms, starting with Babylon, yep. Medo-Persia, Greece, and so forth. And uh, that he couldn't, have, he couldn't have foretold that because it's impossible to foretell the future. But he also then predicted there wouldn't be another world kingdom. Correct. So he predicts all these world kingdoms over just a few centuries. Then he predicts there's not going to be another one over millennia. That also has to be explained, doesn't it? And you can't explain it unless it was a prediction, a prophecy, that someone who can knows the end from the beginning has given for him to write. Hmm. Now, I know that Carl Sagan once said that you know, the people try to use prophecy to validate their religion, but nothing had the prophetic accuracy, accuracy of science. And that's true to some extent, particularly if you're talking in the physical domain. I mean, science can tell us where the moon is going to be and mm-hmm. where the sun's, where the earth is going to be in relationship to the sun hundreds of years into the future. But it can't tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. But the Bible takes on the sorts of prophecies in that messy human domain of human affairs and tells us hundreds or thousands of years into the future with stunning accuracy what's going to happen. So for that to happen, there has to be some supernatural source of this information, doesn't it? You know, it's interesting. People may knock the Bible, may deny its claims, but no one has come up with evidence to show that it isn't what it says it is. It's not there. It's also interesting that in the book of uh, Isaiah, Isaiah 41, verses 21 to 23, God throws out a challenge to unbelief. And he said, if you can tell what happened in the distant past, you can tell what happens in the distant future, then you're God. But if you can't, you're not God, and you need to recognize me. Right. And I think that that's a, 
that's interesting because science purports to tell us what happened in the distant past, but it can't, with accuracy, tell us what's going to happen in the future. Mm -hmm. It can't tell us whether those conditions will or won't be met. So we have a situation now where not just the authority of the Bible is disputed about who's going to be able to interpret it more correctly, but the very authority of the Bible is disputed by another absolute belief mm. system, which is science. And so we have not only the internal issues within religion about what's going to be the source of authority, but we have this issue between religion and science, and that's the one that seems to distract us from the biblical accounts. But as you're saying, there is evidence for the Bible. And uh, I think if I understand the Bible correctly, it's eventually going to win out in terms of what's going to take place in the future. Well, if you have a, a God who knows the end from the beginning and is omniscient and omnipotent, you want to be on that side, don't you? And the Bible does talk about the end of the world. It talks about it the does. second coming and it talks about what's going to take place mm -hmm. at the end of the world. But it's not the disastrous scenario that we might see from no. the scientific narrative. So there, there are conflicting things there that people need to resolve for themselves. And that's why this information about the Bible is so important, because if we only make intelligent decisions about what we believe and the future, we need to know that our sources of authority are actually accurate and right. reliable. Well, that's been really fascinating stuff. I think what we need to do now is just to have a look at uh, your life and early experiences after we come back from the break. Okay. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Pastor Harold Harker. We've been talking about turning points in history and some evidence of supporting the biblical narrative. In this part of the program, I'll talk with Harold about his early life and his decision to become a minister. Harold, tell me about your early life and experiences. Well, I was born in Brisbane and grew up there for most of my time. We, my parents moved down to New South Wales for two or three years, but we moved back in 1942 in the middle of the Japanese advance and Brisbane was really buzzing with the So Americans. everyone was heading south and you were going north. I can remember in our school playground, they dug a great big hole and they were going to put a searchlight battery in there. And they had down the back of the, the school ground some makeshift shelters and some we put some trenches in and we had to have 
uh, runs to get out, try and go and hide in the trench and come back to school. That must have been pretty exciting for, <laughs> for young kids those oh, days. Well, there was no planes, but you know, it was a game for us at that stage. Mm. Yeah. So after you came back to Queensland, you, 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 were you there for the... I, I grew up there then and I went to school there. My parents had a farm. They went farming for most of my days. And so I grew up with animals and with plants and, and everything else. So with all of this sort of material stuff around you, you develop an interest in history. Well, at school did that for me. Uh, when I went to the primary school, they didn't have libraries like they have today and there was no internet, but I had read every book, I think bar one, in the school library by the time I finished that primary school. Hmm. So I was an avid reader and history was one of the topics that I really loved. Why didn't you become a professional historian? I could have. I would have enjoyed that. I, I guess I got other interests along the way. Uh, going through high school, science became a top priority. In fact, for year 12, I got 98% or something for chemistry. And science would have been what I hoped to do. Hmm. And actually, I enrolled for a year in the university and did science, one. But... Uh, in those days, I had a scholarship that gave me 200 pounds a year and my parents couldn't supply much. The farm was in a lean time and I'd spent that by July, August and I had to, nothing to live on for the rest. And while I got a few vegetables from home on weekends, I couldn't exist. So I said, no, I've got to leave this and I went to teacher's college. Did you ever regret leaving science? Yes, I, I loved science. What, what were your interest areas? Uh, mainly the chemi chemistry was the big one. Uh, I, I could have been a science teacher and would have loved it, but I didn't. So I went and did primary teaching and went out as a primary teacher. You're probably a little bit before your time because if you'd been born a little bit later, you probably would have picked up a Commonwealth scholarship and well, I did fees get, wouldn't have been an issue. I did get one, but it didn't have fees. It only had a living allowance and I had what today is about $500 to live for the year. Mm. So when you live on pasta and not much else and wheat picks, it's not too good. So you left uni and you went to teacher's, teacher's college. college and did primary teaching. And so I taught for the government for a couple of years in Queensland. Mm -hmm. And then I had decided this isn't for me. I have always said growing up, my parents had said, you need to think about Avondale College, the College of Higher Education there today. And I said, if I ever go there, I will do ministry. And as kids, some of my cousins were there, and we played church. And I can remember my cousin hitting me over the head when I was supposed to be praying in church, saying, it's too long, mate, it's too long. <laughs> but I always said, if I go to Avondale, it'll be for ministry. Okay, before we get to that story, I want to just go back and ask you to tell me a little bit more about your family. My family were a great Christian family. I have a lot of respect for my mum and dad. Dad was a leader of the local church wherever he was. Uh, my mum had great ideas about what was right and what was wrong. Uh, they were always hospitable, always had friends in, and I've got 
uh, some of these aspects from Dad. No one left our place without taking away some things, mm. grocery, uh, vegetables or fruit or whatever we had on the farm. And he was generous, and I've learned to be generous because of my dad. I remember him as a, uh, as a great storyteller. Yes. Someone who was very warm and easy to relate to. And I can recall when he visited our place and then later lived very close to us, getting him t- with my sister. My sister and I would get him and say, come on, Uncle, tell us a story. Yeah. And he would sit down and tell us a story. We just loved his stories. That was great. So I only had one brother. And the two of us, as we grew up in Queensland on the farm, we had farm duties to do as well. Even though we growled at it, it was probably good for us. Mm. Uh, so we grew up in a good life. Uh, there wasn't much of material things, but we had a we lived pretty well. Now, did you meet your wife, Glenda, before you got interested in ministry or afterwards? I met Glenda when I was at college, and I went there and enrolled in the, was enrolling in the ministerial course, and the education guy said, why don't you come and do the teaching course and then finish your ministry? Because if you do these subjects, we'll give you uh, recognition for your teaching. We'll give you credit for all what you've done. And you can still do your ministerial. And so I said, OK. He said, it'll be a bit mixed up, but you'll still get through in the same time. So I did that. And at the end of the year, I'm ready to go back to college to finish my ministry. Uh, training and they called me to be a teacher in our church school system and so I said Lord you've called me out of this what are you putting me back in it for Hmm. and uh, I said well God if you really want me I believe in following God because he knows what's best for me and so I, I went teaching for a couple of years for three years there but then said, no, in that time, I had studied other subjects of ministry by correspondence. I said, no, I want to be back in ministry. I want to go to ministry. And the conference then called me straight into ministry. So I used my background and my knowledge and moved from teaching into ministry at that time. When I met Glenda, I'd been, I was teaching for the first few years, and then we moved to ministry. And then you ended up pretty soon after that in Papua New Guinea, didn't you? After, after 18 months and that, we were called to be a missionary in Papua New Guinea. Pretty amazing. You start out in science, you end up in teaching, you go into ministry, and then you end up in, in Papua New Guinea, all within the space of just a few years. Later on, as a pastor, I could relate to the science students because it was been an interest of mine. Mm. I could relate to the schools and the teachers, mm. all of that. And in fact, in my schooling, we moved from Brisbane to a country school and I'd taken history. Guess what? History. Yes. And when we went to the country school, sorry, we don't have history. Um, You'll have to do something else. So I started bookkeeping and I finally got a good hand on bookkeeping. And that stood me in good stead, too, as an administrator, when you have balance sheets to read and it's great. And so I can now see God's hand going through this, preparing me for what he had for me. So if you're looking forward, you can't see particularly a pattern. No. But as you look back, you can see that God prepared you for sure. your, your duties in the future. And uh, to go to Papua New Guinea in a cross-cultural environment, that teaches you how to relate to people in different areas. And I found that is great. If a pastor can't relate to people, 
You can't minister to people. And I've found all of these aspects just enhance the ability to work for God. You came back from Papua New Guinea in the 1970s, wasn't it? The mm-hmm. early 1970s? End of 73. 73. And you were involved in ministry in South Queensland? I was the largest church in South Queensland of our church, and I was there for four years. Busy time, but a, a great time. Then you got called to be a conference president. I think you went to North yes. Queensland, didn't you, at that point? Yes. I was up there for three years, then came back to South Queensland for five years as a conference president there. Now, conference is a collection of churches. Yes. So in, in a geographic area. Mm-hmm. A union conference is a union of... Conferences. Conferences, yeah. So if you're looking at it in promotional terms, you would see it as a, as a step up. Well, some would. Some would, yeah. <laughs> in, in a way, you see a broader picture of the work of God. Mm. But in a close personal way, you don't have quite as much close personal contact. Now, you're in the Trans-Tasman Union. That no longer exists. It's just an Australian Now they made now. Australia. And I was cared for New Zealand as well. That's now been so put you had to the Pacific. Queensland, Northern Australia, Queensland. Sydney. Sydney. North New South Wales. North New South Wales. What about South New South Wales? No. no. And the two New Zealand conferences. And the two New Zealand conferences. So I've travelled to New Zealand a fair bit at the time as well. Hmm. And, of course, our, our grandfather grew up there, didn't he? He did. He, beca- he learnt about this message while he was there. In fact, I've been reading my grandfather's mm-hmm. biography, my grandfather, on air. It's just about to conclude. And uh, so we have this connection with New Zealand mm-hmm. as well. What did you find most satisfying about your work in, in church administration? Church administration is trying to encourage the local church to get about their work and see that things are going well there. And so you you get other aspects that you don't have in as just a pastor of a church. A pastor of a church is trying to work with those people, but at a conference administrator, you're seeing at a much larger level. And so you have planning, you have a lot more foresight, um, you're try, you're in working with different pastors, different people. Uh, I've always tried as an administrator to have a great team spirit. Someone said recently it takes teamwork to make a dream work. Mm. And uh, that's true. I was at a seminar last weekend when that was mentioned. But a conference administrator, you can have the opportunity to dream and then to try and plan. And you put around you people who will work with you but are free to work in their own area. And I think that's great. So ministry is working with teams right from the church level right through to like a general conference. But as you go further up, you're getting a bigger perspective on, on, on what's happening. Which would you prefer to be, a local church pastor or an administrator? A local church pastor is great when your family is young and growing up because you're with your family. The, the, when you're given greater responsibility, it means more travel away from home. Mm. And so there's pluses and minuses, but you can get the big picture and you see what God's doing around the world. I mean, I've sat on the committee of our General Conference Committee for 14, 15 years, and you see what's happening from Africa and Asia and America and not only in your own country, 
and you say, well, they're doing something there. That could work here. And you get ideas about how we could do things here from other places. So it gives you a challenge, a different perspective than what you do if you're just looking at a local congregation. Mm. And you get a chance to actually influence the course of events, don't you? Right. Now, the churches um, these days are facing lots of challenges. What are the challenges that you see churches facing, Christian churches facing in the West at this time? We are living in a very secular country. We would be one of the most secular countries in the world here in Australia. I've noticed a difference. Let me just go back to Russia for a minute. When we first went to Russia in 1992, people would run to hear what God could do for them. Today, you wouldn't get a quarter of the audience that you did back then. And in this country, you have to have a way that will touch people when they need something and supply that need and then show that God is the basis of it. it it's not just preaching from the Bible. The days of great preachers, we might still have some good preachers, but in the days when the thousands would flock are gone, secularism, materialism has come, and there seems to be a direct correlation between materialism and secularism and a lack of uh, a sense of need of God in the life. And so we need to, as a Christian organization, need to recognize that and find ways to touch people where they need it. So religion's almost become a fallback position. It's not your not your preferred position, but if there's some great disaster or something, then you look back to things that might have been a comfort to our society in the past. So there's a tendency when these great turning points and challenges right. come to our world to actually see a rise in spirituality. But as soon as you see that prosperity, you see that inverse relationship. When I was a child, probably 90% of Australia went to church reasonably regularly. Today, it's probably around 10 to 15%. If that. That's a massive change. That's a tremendous change. Now, when 9-11 came, the churches of America were packed the next few weeks, but then they dwindled down again. It may take some major event, catastrophe, terrorism, to say, well, there is something more than just materialism today. Mm. And I think we have to be ready for that. We've been talking about history and... Uh Let's talk about the future for the moment. Okay. What's your hope for the future? And where do you see the world going based on your understanding of the Bible? From the Bible, it tells me that the world will get worse and worse. Um, I, I don't see it getting better. There was a time when people said utopia is just ahead of us. I don't see that. I see crime going, getting worse. I see terrorism getting worse. I see all of this. Uh, the instability of many of the countries of the world financially, I'm told, if you listen to the, some of the, the uh, experts, supposed experts, uh, there's going to be a great crunch coming yet. How can when the greatest country of the world, United States, has a $16 trillion debt going up by millions and millions every day? Uh, Australia's gone down the gurgler a little bit. How do we, what happens? And so I don't see the world getting better, but I do see Jesus 
has an answer who will give us peace in the middle of trouble and has a hope for us because he says he's coming back to a better world, a new world, that these problems won't be there. And that's a hope to live by. So I can recall back that 25 years ago when the when Europe was changing so dramatically and then with the dissolution of the Soviet Union there was this triumphalism in the West which said, in fact I think some people even wrote, I think uh, Fukuyama wrote a book called The End of History. Mm-hmm. It was like the West has won, the Cold War has gone, but, but now our security situation is worse than it was a generation ago. And there's almost a Cold War starting again. Hmm. So the outlook for the world is not particularly good. And if we look at the biblical record, it's really telling us that conditions in the world are going to be fairly dramatic when Jesus comes. So are these things that are happening signs that Jesus is coming back? Absolutely. I believe if you look at his um, sermon, if you like to call it a sermon, his talk on the Mount of Olives, he says nation will rise against nation. There will be troubles and perplexities. Men's hearts will fail them for fear. But haven't these things always been happening? But they are accelerating. Okay, so that's the key point. That's the key point. I think as we approach the end of time, it will accelerate. Take the natural catastrophes, whether you look at tsunamis or uh, uh, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, there's more and they're bigger than they were down through the centuries. Mm. And so I just see the hope for the future is in a new world in, that Jesus is going to bring with him. So we don't have to be afraid of the future. We can, we can have a guide, someone who can take us through whatever takes place in the future. Well, he knows the end from the beginning. Yes. Harold, what have you learned from your life that you think we all ought to know? Well, I think if you, my belief is you need to have something to anchor your faith and your life on. If you don't have that security, then you're like a wave in the sea, you just come and go. The flotsam on the beach. But if you have something that anchors that's beyond yourself in a power that's greater than you, I've found that in Jesus Christ. And I just say that gives me a purpose, it gives me direction in life, and it gives me a hope for the future. Do you have a favorite Bible passage? Well, it's one of one of those that deals with the hope. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, you can be also. And I just say, and then in Revelation he says, I come quickly. And I just say, let that come because I want to be with him in that great kingdom he's prepared. It's mm, a wonderful passage in John 14 that you... It is, John 14, wonderful. to there. Wonderful promise that he's going to come back. And that's a great hope for the world, isn't it, as it descends into more and more chaos, that Jesus offers us that, that hope that he is going to come back. Sure is. And if we put our faith and confidence in him, then we can have that life. We can have that security, despite mm-hmm. all the things that might be taking place around us. As I learned in hospital, it can be bad, but if you have a faith... God brought me through, and I think that's another reason. Whether you have troubles or trials or illnesses... And they're surely going to come, aren't they? They they will come, but there is one that you can trust, and I've learned to trust him. Hmm. 
Harold, would you like to um, close our conversation with a prayer today? Sure. Our Father in heaven, firstly, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who left heaven, came down for us, and showed us how to live, and gave us a basis for faith and trust in him. Today, we just want to put our lives in his care, be with those who are in the midst of trials or sickness or whatever it is, but may we find an anchor and put our faith securely in him and know that he has the future in his hands too. And so we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Harold, thank you for the conversation today and for the one last week. I hope that uh, some of our conversation will be helpful to listeners to encourage them if they're facing conflict, uh, illness, uh, family issues, financial issues, that they can see that there is, there are reasons to support the Bible, uh, its truthfulness, its impact on our lives, the fact that we can anchor our lives right. in the wonderful hope, not just of the Bible, but also of the, of the soon return of Jesus. And so thank you again for the conversations. And if people need to contact you or want to contact you, can you just repeat your right. contact details? My contact details, I have an email, harold.harker, H-A-R-K-E-R, at gmail.com, harold.harker at gmail.com. Now, if uh, you weren't uh, listening last week, Harold leads tours to Bible lands. And he, can also, he also has uh, links with people who still take church history tours through Europe. So if you've been listening today or last week and you would like to contact Harold, feel free to do so. If he can't help you, he knows someone who can help you. Sure. And I'm sure that uh, if you were to go on one of these tours or consider one of these tours, you'd have a life-changing experience. Oh, we've got one coming up even this year in September. Okay, so... Uh, Contact Harold if you feel that uh, you would like to go on one of these tours or contact him about any of the things that we've talked about today. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you've been listening to Life Learnings. My guest today has been Pastor Harold Harker. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio.